Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode of Other People is brought to you by Squarespace, an all-in-one platform that makes it easy for you to create your own professional website or online portfolio. Squarespace offers a wide range of customizable designs with over 20 templates to choose from, along with a wide range of style options so you can make your site look just how you want it to look. Did I mention functionality? Did I mention on-the-go convenience? Squarespace now offers 3D shipping visualization. There's Squarespace for musicians. And hey, just recently, Squarespace launched two new apps, the Metrics app, and the blog app. The Metrics app is a fluid way to monitor website analytics, and the blog app lets you draft, post, schedule, and review blog entries while also allowing you to monitor comments. Squarespace, hey, it's easy to use, but if for any reason you need help, uh, there's a great support team at the ready 24-7, and we know who these people are, do we not? They work in an office that has been nicknamed the Care Bear Lair. The Care Bear Lair. Let that sink in for a second. Try to wrap your head around that. It's okay if you get emotional. Packages start at just 8 bucks a month, and you get a free domain name if you sign up for a year. Also, every single website design automatically includes a unique mobile experience that will match the overall style of your site, so your content will always look great on every device, every time. So let's go, people. Let's start a trial right now. No credit card required. Start building your website. Go to squarespace.com, and when you sign up at Squarespace, be sure to use the offer code OTHER11. Again, that offer code is OTHER11. You do that, you get 10% off, and uh, hey, it's a terrific way to show your support for this program. Go to squarespace.com right now and take advantage of this amazing offer. It's an exceptional way to build or improve your web presence. Squarespace, it's everything you need to create a great website. So go and create one. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. folks, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is me trying to talk to other human beings. This is you voraciously 
consuming what I hope is high quality content. Thanks for listening. Thank you for focusing on this. My name is Brad Listy. Uh, as usual, I'm seated here in Los Angeles, California, the entertainment capital of the world. My guest today is Kevin Sampsel. He has a new novel out, a debut novel, I believe. Uh, the book is called This Is Between Us. It is available now from Tin House Books, and I'm going to be talking with Kevin in just a minute. First, however, some feedback. Uh, some more feedback. The emails, they keep pouring in. So before I forget uh, to do the uh, business end of this thing, if you want to email me, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com, or if you would like to leave me a voicemail, uh, which is also enjoyable, you can do that at the show's official website, otherpeoplepod.com. You just click on send voicemail over at the right side of the page. So uh, let me read a few messages from some listeners uh, before we, be, you know, we get rolling with the main event. This first one comes from a guy named Peter who says, Hey man, I like you and your podcast. Really getting into it as a new listener. Enjoyed your account of running into Tom Waits. Uh, I would not have handled it so smoothly. I would have gushed and stammered and told him about the first time hearing him in an old World War II bunker near San Francisco in the middle of the night. It was my first time on acid and while sitting there in a Christmas light decorated underground room, hearing rain dogs for the first time, I thought he was the devil and was t uh, talking to me directly. Anyway, thanks. Love the podcast. Peter. So uh, thank you, Peter, for uh, writing in. And, uh, you know, first of all, taking acid and doing anything in public, anything, seems uh, to me, in retrospect, like a uh, bad idea. Like these kinds of psychedelic activities uh, are best suited to uh, solitude and or uh, nature, some combination thereof. And I'm taking my cues from uh, Terrence McKenna who is, uh, was an expert on the subject, is an expert on the subject, even though he's no longer with us. Uh, he, when taking psychedelics, used to just sit in a dark room by himself. And he would uh, eat uh, five dried grams of psilocybin mushrooms, which, incidentally, is a terrifying amount. <laughs> and uh, he would sit there alone in darkness and silence until the effects kicked in an experience that I once uh, heard him describe as uh, being like a freight train roaring, like roaring through your skull or something. So, you know, never mind the inertia, never mind the uh, darkness or lack of proper stimuli. My point is that if you drop acid or you take some other form of uh, hallucinogen, you don't need additional entertainment, <laughs> you know? You don't need other human beings. You don't need music. You don't need lights. It's only going to complicate things. Sensory deprivation is probably the preferred uh, mode followed by uh, immersion in a spectacular nature setting or something. Which, you know, Peter probably knows by now. I, I assume this uh, Tom Waits experience might have, might have uh, converted him. So... As to my own uh, Tom Waits experience, I think I was helped by the fact that it was all spontaneous, not to mention uh, I was not under the influence of hallucinogens or uh, hallucinogens. 
depending on how you prefer to pronounce it. I didn't see Tom Waits uh, in the bookstore, and that's what happened, in case you're not up to speed. Uh, I met Tom Waits in a bookstore here in Los Angeles, and I didn't see him uh, until I was there in line and he started talking to me. So I didn't have time to overthink it. It was just a very quietly shocking experience and one that was uh, casual. And then it was over. So the next letter uh, comes from a listener named Juliet, who uh, wrote to me in response to something I said uh, on a previous episode about this program and whether or not it qualifies as art. Which is to say, is what I'm doing here an artistic exercise? Am I making art when I do this show? Or am I making media? What is the difference? So Juliet says, hi, Brad. Personally, I define quote-unquote art as making something that has the capability of affecting people on an emotional level and making it well enough that you must exercise and build a certain set of skills. There is also an element of talent that comes with art. Based on these criteria, you're making art. I often feel things when I listen to your show. Sometimes it makes me think about things in a new way. You've gotten better at responding to people and drawing them out as the show has progressed but you displayed a knack for it from the beginning, signed, Juliet. So thank you, Juliet. I appreciate that. And, you know, ultimately, does it really matter what you call it? I'm probably obsessing needlessly here. Like, is the nomenclature important? If the show is making people laugh a little bit and think a little bit and feel a little bit less alone then uh, it's doing its job. Right? It's a, it's a, in that case, it is a uh, force for good, a small force for good. I just want to be a small force for good. <laughs> That's all. And then I will uh, die happily at the age of 110. Okay? Is that a deal? Uh, the third... And final letter comes from a listener named Aaron. She says, hi, Brad, big fan of the show. Uh, I'm just curious. I live in Los Angeles and would be, and it would be interesting to watch one of your interviews in person with one or more writers. I think this encourages a stronger community atmosphere, at least on a local level. And it would be fun to see your interviews in person. Thanks again uh, for a great show. It's interesting hearing about writers. I might, I might not otherwise find out about best Aaron. Well, thank you for writing, Aaron. Uh, and I have thought about this with some trepidation, like mostly due to the uh, logistical aspect of it, you know, like hauling sound equipment around, setting up the equipment, arranging things, scheduling interviews, and then uh, perhaps most of all, worrying about people showing up, <laughs> you know, that's really the thing. Would there really be a crowd for something like that? Or would it just be like three people? Because that's an issue with literary events. They stress me out, man. <laughs> There's a lot to concern yourself with. But, you know, if there was an opportunity to do a live show and I felt like some of the logistics were going to be handled or I would have some help handling them, then I think I would consider it. It's all about context. The situation. 
And, you know, that's the best I can tell you right now. So I guess my answer is maybe. Maybe that will happen. I'm getting a little anxious just thinking about it. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Kevin Samsel. It's great to have him here. His new novel, This Is Between Us, is out there now from Tin House Books. Kevin, uh, for those of you who are not aware of him, he lives up in Portland. He's worked at Powell's Bookstore for a long time, and he runs a small independent press called Future Tense. Uh, just very active in the literary community. He does a lot of good things, and uh, it's great to have him here. So here we go, folks. This is my conversation with Kevin Sampsel, and his new novel, once again, is called This Is Between Us. I have all my pants in the dryer right now, so I'm wearing a sweatshirt, but I just have, like, boxers on, so I thought this would be a, kind of a good experiment to, like, do an interview where I'm sort of like, you know, almost half naked or most, you know, of, most of the time, like that. most of the time when I'm talking to someone on, on the phone, uh, they are half naked. It's very common. Yeah. And you probably do it too. Uh, I'm, I'm sure. Right. I'm completely nude whenever, with, I, whenever I do a with, with, <laughs> with certain people, maybe with just certain choice interviews. Yeah. Well, actually I, I, I don't discriminate every single person I talk to on the phone. I feel like a, a sense of obligation to strip down. Yeah. Oh, that's good. So I have socks on, um, but that's weird. I, I just think this whole, I feel very, very creepy because I'm just like wearing like brown dress socks and like boxer shorts and, <laughs> and a, and a sweatshirt. So I'm like, I'm like the worst, you know, like, uh, um, uh, stereotype of, you know, like the creepy uncle guy that, you know, walks around in his underwear all the time. I feel like there's uh, like, like the, like shorts. I feel like the, the like the socks and sandals look is the ultimate. Yeah, like especially like brown I, socks and like you know that doesn't that doesn't uh, work for me at all. Yeah, dress socks and then like when people wear like those little garter things to hold their socks up. Um, I haven't gotten to that point. I I don't I don't really know like where you buy those sock garter things. Um, if uh, if people actually still use them, I think they still. Have you ever worn a sock garter? I never have, thing? but I want to say that my grandfather did. <laughs> I want to say that I actually remember seeing those on him, but I could be wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well. let me uh, let me ask you, because you are in Portland, and, um, you know, you like I always say this on the show, 
And I think it's a common experience for people in life generally, but, you know, in literary life in particular, in contemporary times, uh, you know, if you spend any amount of time online, you start to get an understanding of who the players are in the world of books, and you start to see the same names pop up over and over again. And certainly within the context of Portland uh, and, and also within the context of independent publishing, uh, your name appears quite a bit. And uh, I think that, uh, it, it, you know, it's commendable how much you do. And I want to talk about, you know, all the different various roles you play and how that came to pass. Um, so why don't we start with Powell's? Because you do work at Powell's, which is, you know, I think one of the big uh, literary hubs, certainly on the West Coast, but I think in America, in America, broadly speaking. Oh, yeah. I think, uh, you know, it's it's, uh, it's the best bookstore in the country, really. Um, I've been working there for about 16 years now, um, coming up on my 16-year anniversary. And, um, uh, yeah, I moved here uh, probably about five years before I actually started working there. Um, and, you know, that was one of the reasons why I moved to Portland, um, just because... It's such an awesome uh, thing to, to have, you know, in a city where you live. Um, it's just an endless resource. It's an endless source of entertainment and, you know, cool place to hang out. And, like, you see people there all the time, friends and, you know, other people that you that you meet. And, um, uh, yeah, I love working there. I, I started working there as, like, a Christmas um, cashier, like a Christmas temp <laughs> kind of situation. And, uh, I started, I was doing some of the event stuff, like introducing authors and stuff. And, um, some of the other people, uh, there were a few other people at the store at that time that were really interested in doing that. So I think that the managers probably thought like, well, we can't let that guy go because, He's the only guy who wants to like set up chairs and <laughs> plug in the microphone or whatever, you know. So, well, so, um, so how big of a like how big of a role, uh, you know? You you've lived in Portland for a long time. You've worked at Powell's for a long time. Like, do you have a sense for how big of a place Powell's has in like the civic life of Portland? Like, how I mean, obviously it's important to the book nerds, but is it like a destination <laughs> for travelers? I mean, like it, it sort of looms. Oh, large, yeah. It sort of looms large in my imagination. Like. Is it as big as yeah. I think? I think it is. Yeah, it's huge. It's it's like a whole city block, and it's like, you know, if you count like the the basement and the fourth floor or whatever, it's like it's like five levels, you know, of books, and um, and uh, there's so many books that they're not they're not always all on the shelf. You know, it's like, there's like back rooms and like, you know, the, the top floors, like people like resorting the books to the sections and like labeling books for the sections. And, you know, we, we, we buy used books. So there's like people constantly coming in uh, through the day selling used books. So it's like this never ending, um, you know, like, circus of, of, of books coming in you never know like what you're gonna what you're gonna find on a day-to-day basis you know like even just working there for so many years it's still like really exciting to be working and then and then see a book come you know like on a shelving part and it's like oh my god I didn't know this book existed or like you know I've been looking for this book or um yeah it's really an amazing 
place to work and uh, the people that work there are great. I have a ton of friends that work there and um, that I've just made throughout the years. And um, it's a real, it's a real family sort of um, environment. I think with, with a lot of the employees, you know, we, we kind of help each other out and support each other. There's a lot of creative people that work there and, um, in the, in the grand scheme of Portland, it is definitely a big, uh, a big part of the city, a big part of, um, you know, like why you want to live here. And, and it is a big tourist attraction too. We get tons of tourists that come in, you know, like every day, you know, especially if you came in around this time of year, like around like the holiday shopping season and stuff. It's like you can barely walk through, you know, it's like, it's crazy. But at the same time, it's like, it's really like a beautiful, special thing to behold a bookstore, like, you know, just bustling with, with readers and people. So, okay. So Powell's is is thriving then. It's not like, I mean, because we always hear gloom and doom around bookstores and, you know, the actual brick and mortar stores, but Powell's is doing well. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, from what I've heard, it seems like things are going pretty well. And, um, you know, uh, I don't think our sales are um, are declining or anything. I mean, I, I'm not really certain, but um, it seems like things are going really well. And I mean, the amount of traffic that we get and, you know, plus our website is a big um, is a big part of the business, too. And we have a whole you know, slew of employees that, that their jobs are just running around the stores with these, you know, internet slips and they, they look for books all day and gather up the internet orders and stuff. So, um, it seems like we're, we're doing really well. I think, you know, the whole independent bookstore thing, I remember, you know, like maybe 10 years or so ago, it seemed like people were really concerned about, you know, um, all these stores going out of business and, and a bunch of stores did go out of business, um, you know, with Amazon and Borders and Barnes and Noble and stuff like all moving into the neighborhoods and, and Amazon getting more popular. But um, it seems like I've I've heard of a lot of independent stores kind of coming back and a lot of new independent stores being opened up. And um, I don't know what 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 exactly caused that, but it does seem like there's sort of a new appreciation for um, for independent bookstores around the country. I think so. Uh, I would hope so. I would hope so. I think like I like lately I've been thinking that it's about location. Like obviously knowing your neighborhood matters um and being in a neighborhood mm-hmm. where you have people who are literate and interested in reading it matters otherwise you're not going to do business. But um so I think location is, is a really significant factor and then I also think curation uh, might also be a component of the independent yeah. books, you know bookstore um experience that would uh, you know make the the store itself that much more valuable to local people. If you're, if you're stocking, yeah. you know, if you're stocking books that they might have a tendency to be interested in, it's, it's like knowing your audience essentially. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, um, sometimes that can be easier for like smaller bookstores in other towns because I mean, you kind of have smaller space and it's like, you sort of have more of a feel of like the, the bookstore owners, like picking out the books that they really want to, um, carry and the books that they really want to display. And, um, I mean, I have a, one of my jobs at Powell's is I run the small press section, which is a pretty unique section. I carry like, you know, small press, literary fiction and, and poetry. Um, and, uh, um, 
that it's, you know, it's kind of a small little corner of the store, but there's not really that many bookstores around the country that have like small press sections like that. So I was going to say, I was um, going to say that sounds like, that sounds like uh, an outlier in and of itself. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like its own little, uh, you know, you could almost like section that part of the store off and make it its own little bookstore. You know, it might not be as successful as like the, the business section and the cooking section and stuff like that. But, um, um, I, I, I take a lot of pride in that section and I get a lot of comments from people that come in, people that come in from out of town and people that, that are like people that live here that are regular customers for that section. And, um, uh, yeah, I just think it's really, it's cool that the bookstore is so huge it's cool that, that we can have that section. And I wasn't the one who started it. You know, there's other people who, who uh, were my predecessors or, you know, the people who, who originated it and, and built it. And, and I, I just took it over, you know, like 10 years or so ago. And, um, and uh, so I don't know. I'm just, I'm, I'm lucky to, to have that, that power to like, have that part of the bookstore where I can kind of like do what I want and I can order books in that I want. If I want to order like a bunch of like books from publishing genius or magic helicopter or octopus books or whatever, and put them on display, I can do that, you know? And that's one of the, the great things about, about my job. Well, I think too, I think, but I think too, like right now, I mean like the, the timing couldn't be better because I feel like this is really a golden age for independent publishing. Um, yeah, there's so much good stuff out there now. Yeah, and the technology, right? I mean, and they just they sprout up every day. You know, it's like there's so much, in, and yeah. I feel like there's a lot of really interesting stuff uh, happening in literature on the periphery. Uh, you know, like these smaller presses taking chances on authors and on books that might not get a shot otherwise, or might have fallen through yep. the cracks somehow. And it's just really interesting work. So, like, if, if yeah. you if you have your ear to the ground with respect to that particular kind of work and you get to curate a mm -hmm. section like that's uh that seems like a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that is exactly it too. It's these things that other publishers wouldn't normally uh, publish. You know, they, uh, people, you know, bigger publishers sometimes don't want to take a chance on something or sometimes it, it is like um, a certain style of writing or a certain style of poetry or whatever that doesn't have a big audience but it's great to have these presses that will put those books out, you know, even if they only sell, you know, like 200 copies of a book or whatever. Um, it's, uh, you know, it, it's, it's just amazing how, how much, uh, how much it's changed um, with publishing and, and, and printing technology too has a lot to do with that too. Well, sure. So um, it's made it, it's made it more accessible for, for anybody to like start their own press, you know, it's what, like that, like 10 years or 20 years ago, you'd have to come up with, you know, a couple of thousand dollars at least to, to start your own press if you wanted to like start putting out, you know, paperback books or whatever. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's, um, it's kind of cool. Like the, where we're at right now, um, in book history is, is, is really pretty unique and special, you know, even with all of the, other stuff happening like ebooks and things like that you know well sure and and with regard to your tenure at uh powell's like are you one of the longest tenured employees at 16 years or are there people that have outlasted you or have, have outdone you there uh, yeah yeah there's uh there are a few uh, uh some other people there that have been there for a really long time there's a guy 
um, that just had like his 30 year anniversary. Um, I mean, the store has been open for 42 years. I think this is a 42nd year. And, um, there's, uh, yeah, I think there might even be a guy there that's, that's worked almost the, the whole time. I remember there's a guy that I work with. He's a really great guy named Javier. And he, I was working with him once and he was like, yeah, I remember, you know, we would close up the store and I would have to take the money bag down to the bank, <laughs> you know, and I'm just like, and it's so weird to imagine that now. Like if you, if you saw Powell's now, it'd be ridiculous to think <laughs> of someone carrying a money bag. But I think back then, you know, when it first opened, it was probably like the size of, you know, like your typical kind of like, I don't know, you know, grocery store size kind of place or whatever. Sure. Um, now it's like, now it's like the size of a mall. So, you know, it's, it's crazy. Well, so, okay. So having worked in books as a bookseller for all these years and, um, and at one of the premier, um, indie bookstores, if not the premier indie bookstore in the country, uh, do you have a sense of why books take off? Like, do you have any idea how it happens? Like where a book for whatever reason catches on, uh, is there is there some sort of formula, or is it is it as mystical as it seems to be? You know, where uh, obviously the writing is really good, and whatever the the author mm-hmm. happens to be saying strikes a particular nerve at a particular time in the yeah. you know, in the mo- it's like a cultural moment. It's the collective uncon you know con- or the collective consciousness, whatever you want to call it. Like, do you have any sense of how that happens from the perspective of a bookseller? I think after working at a bookstore for so long you do kind of pick up on some of that stuff and you do get a sense of what is going to make a book take off. Um, and, um, um, yeah, I just, I think like, uh, it's interesting cause you know, you see, you get review copies, you get advanced copies from publishers, uh, books coming out and, um, you can kind of go through the, the stacks of those books, you know, that are coming out like three or four months. And you can kind of tell like, oh, this looks like it could be really big. And this could be, you know, this one, I don't know. This looks like it's going to, you know, just kind of fade away. And um, I mean, a lot of it is um, the author, you know, depends on who the author is, like what they've what they've done, like what sort of audience they've been able to build, you know, for themselves. Um, and a lot of it just has to do, you know, of course, with the, the writing. And, um, uh, I just, I think that people who write from the heart these days are the ones that are connecting with more and more people. Um, as opposed to, what? As, 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 opp- always... as, as opposed to what, like, I mean, the people who are writing maybe for the money well, or something. I mean, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm just going to say like, you know, like stylistically, I remember, um, when McSweeney's uh, um, started to get more popular and then Dave's uh, first book came out and that blew up and, and then McSweeney's was like, was like super popular and all these people were sort of, um, you know, you, you kind of got the, the, the sense that the publishers were kind of trying to hop on that a little bit, trying to publish more like sort of young kind of, kind of hip, like ironic, like humorous, humorous, uh, type stuff um that was kind of in that McSweeney's vein and that was that was great and um uh I was really excited by that stuff um 
but you know things kind of change or you know like move on to different uh kind of uh uh styles you know year after year and so now i feel like um as popular as like the Sweeney stuff was then um you have uh all of these people who are writing really sort of like open-hearted you know like uh memoirs and and like um like conf- novels, like con- confessional, like, like confessional, like hyper candid stuff. You mean? Yeah, it almost seems like that stuff is like um, uh, become something that um, is more um, embraced, or something that, that catches people's attention now. Um, you know, whether it's like Cheryl Strayed, uh, you know, and her success to Lydia Yukovich, um, her memoir really like. Ex- you know, exploded and like quadrupled her audience and, um, you know, uh, it's just, uh, a lot of those people, um, well, it's like, it's like, the, really it's, like it's, it's, it's like post, you know, it's kind of like the post irony, you know, like I think after a while, like mm-hmm. any, any kind of cultural movement where you have a lot of people kind of speaking in the same voice or kind of feeding off of one another, eventually like, yeah. I think it eventually spins itself out, but with it, with irony, like, I mean, after a while, it's like, where else can you go with this? You know, we've all sort of like postured and like, you know, been funny and witty and kind of rolled our eyes at everything. Yeah. And then the natural, next, <laughs> the natural next step is to work against that. So, uh, having said that, since like, we're now post irony, hyper confessional and from the heart, um, I think that writers, mm-hmm. writers who are trying to anticipate the next movement should then be doing what, like, should we be, you know, where are we going to go from, from hyper-confessional, from the heart? Like, do we go back into irony or do we like go somewhere else from there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think part of it too is just like the culture around, not necessarily the culture, but the stuff that's happening in, in the rest of the world, you know, obviously influences what people want to, want to read and stuff too. So, um, you know, uh, if there, if, Maybe maybe the economy has something to do with it. You know, if the economy is really bad and people are pissed off, then they start writing really angry stuff, and then people gravitate toward the angry stuff. And um, or you know, um, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's it's really hard to it's really hard to say. I'm not sure what the, what to expect next. You know, I think in my role as a publisher. Um, you know, I'm, I just look for stuff that, that connects with me, things that I think are really beautiful or interesting or, you know, like strange and, you know, so I, I, I have my own set of, of, uh, sort of criteria when I pick stuff out that I want to read or that I want to publish. And, well, let's, um, let's talk about that just because people who, people who are listening might not mm-hmm. be aware, but like you've been running your own independent press since what, like 1990? Yeah. It's called Future Tense. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And it, you know, I have been doing it a long time. It was really, really like scrappy, uh, you know, cut and paste photocopy at Kinko's kind of thing for the first couple of years. And, um, I think like once I moved to Portland, I got more serious about it. And then we, we've been doing more like paperback books the last few years. And so, um, it's been kind of a slow burn with, with future tense, um, as far as like people kind of like discovering us, you know, in the past, 
in the past few years. And, but you know um, what? I, like, here's a here's a here's a question I want to pose to you because I think, like, you know, I keep an eye on it. I, I'm sort of in the independent press world, and it's something that I'm a fan of. Mm-hmm. And I feel like you've been very savvy about which authors you've published, and I think that. One of the ways that independent presses, and this is just a theory, I have no numbers to back this up, and I certainly have no personal experience, but I think one of the ways that independent presses and micro presses can function uh, over the long haul as viable businesses is to be savvy curators of talent in its early phases. Um, yeah. You know, where, you're, where you have an ear to the ground online and you're saying, you know what, this person is really writing some killer essays. Uh, and I want to mm-hmm. pu- I want to publish a collection of them, or I want to know if they have a memoir in them, or I want to know if they're writing a novel. And yeah. I, I want to get them in print first, so that you know maybe yeah. over the long haul, if they have a big career and they published a bunch of books, um, you know, then all of a sudden you have their first two or three or something like that. Like, is that part? Yeah. Of, is that part of your calculus when you are out there looking for work? And is that how you view future tense um, from a long term perspective? Yeah, I mean, for the most part, I, I do try to um, look for kind of newer writers and maybe people who haven't uh, really had books out. I, I get especially excited when I discover a writer who I think is really awesome, but they don't have a book out yet. Um, and so I will proactively like uh, write to people and say, hey, I really like, you know, your stuff. What do you like? You know, what what do you have? What are you working on? Um I mean that was something that I that I did with uh, Wendy Ortiz, who is a sure. an author that we have coming out next summer. Well, she writes um, for, for the nervous, She writes for the Nervous Breakdown. I, mm-hmm. I love I love Wendy's stuff. Yeah, I mean that was uh, her uh, essay, uh, the mixtape essay that I first um, really uh, you know was like stung by that essay. Um, and contacted her after that, you know, and what kind of, what happens is you, you read something by somebody online that affects you. And then what you usually do is you go and like read other stuff by them. You're like, Oh, what else have they done? And you read and, you know, and if all their other stuff is as strong, then you're like, Oh man, it's like you're this sense of discovery and, you know, this excitement. So with her, that was a big part of it. Um, there's not a lot of writers like that for me. Um, I think like Gregory Sherrill was one, um, you know, I got his first book and the publisher dark sky gave me his first book when it came out. And, um, and I remember kind of just like letting it sit around for a couple of months. And then when I finally opened it, I was like, Whoa. Um, and, he was, he was, uh, he was a great guest on this show, by the way. I really, I like talking. To oh him. yeah. 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 He's great. Um, and, uh, yeah, I just, uh, I, I have somehow developed a pretty good eye for for um, writers who are doing interesting things. And, and one of my hopes, too, of course, is that if I do publish something by them, that it, it gives them a bigger audience and it gives them opportunities to do uh, books with other presses or to, like, graduate up to a ne- you know to other higher levels. I feel like Future Tense is... I think future tense is like is really cool, of course, you know, but but I also know that you know that it has its limitations, and that ultimately we're sort of just kind of like a farm club well, for like okay. the bigger presses. Let me extend this sports analogy because that's exactly what was just going through my mind. <laughs> I've I've had this conversation before about like you know indie presses and micro presses functioning as a farm system 
for bigger publishers. And so what just went through my mind mm -hmm. is that these bigger publishers should really have people like you. Uh, and I think I could do it too. Cause I have, I feel like I have a good sense of who's like going to, mm -hmm. you know, who's ready to be in print or I don't know. I just pay attention a lot, but it's like, why are these big yeah. publishers not hiring us as scouts? <laughs> Like I, I could be, like just like they do in baseball, where people are like, "This guy's going to be a player." Like I can tell you, if you're a publisher, who to keep your eye on. Um, I like I have somebody yeah. that just popped into my mind right now who is like super young and so gifted, and it's clear to me that she's going to be very good, and already is very yeah. good. And somebody needs to scoop her up. Um, uh, nobody is offering oh. money to be a scout. It's it's pissing me off. <laughs> well, I think like maybe part of it is. Um, uh, I, I think there are people from from like the bigger presses um, that probably do keep an eye on who you're talking to, and they probably keep an eye on who I'm uh, working with, and um, they probably want to see like the finished book though, and they probably want to see like what a finished book by by you know those people look like, you know whether it's like Chloe Caldwell or um, um, Jamie Iredell or somebody like that. Um, and uh, yeah, I just think that uh, they, they, I think they're probably pretty comfortable with just kind of waiting it out, you know? No, see, I want them, I, think, I want them to hire me, pay me lots of money and then just have me just tell them what uh -huh. to do. <laughs> yeah. But it is funny how like, um, I feel like I I have a really good sense of like who in the small press world is gonna break out, you know. Right. Um I could and and if you went to the Powell small press section and I and I pointed out I could point out like a bunch of these authors that are in the small press section and say like this person, you know, went on to be on HarperCollins, this person's on FSG now. And, you know, and and they're all people that I feel like I knew that was going to happen. Like I knew that, that, uh, Alyssa Nutting was probably going to get on a big press with the next book after her first book. And I knew that about, um, uh, Amelia Gray and Blake Butler and Lindsay Hunter. Right. You know, and I mean, it's just obvious, you know, and I think that's going to happen with, you know, a bunch of other people too, but I don't want to mention names because I don't want to jinx it. Right. <laughs> Who's the person that you were excited about? Um, I don't want to mention it cause I don't want to jinx it, then, you know, but she, I can tell you, I, I can tell you this. I don't know her very well. I internet know her. I've published her before in the nervous breakdown and she's so young. Mm -hmm. She's like super young. She's like 22 years old, if that. And I'm just like, oh, wow. she's staggeringly good for somebody that young. And it's just, uh, it's sort of a shock to me, like that somebody could be, um, you know, that on it at that age. And it just, it seems to, it seems to augur well for the future. Yeah. And I think, um, it's great if, if you can publish people when they're that young. I mean, I think, uh, that's one of the things that maybe bigger presses, um, sort of hold out on too. like sometimes bigger presses are like, well, that person's good, but they're really young. You know, maybe we should give them a couple of more years. You know, it's like, I mean, I'm just guessing that's what they're thinking. But um, see, but no, but see, what, uh, I, what I wish publishers did, what I wish they did, is I wish they could find a way to rejigger their business model so that they took people 
who are talented at whatever age, but I mean, if they, if they find somebody young mm-hmm. and they just say, we're going to build you, we are going to stick with you. You have a home. We're going to try to make yeah. sure that you have uh, a roof over your head so you can do this work. And we're going to work to make sure that we find you readers. Like, why can that not happen? It seems like, is that pie in the yeah. sky to expect something like that to be possible? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, I think it, I think it does happen every once in a while, but, um, I think only when, I think it only happens now if the publisher is expecting a bigger payoff. Um, you know, like even um, uh, some of these publishers that p- publish people like George Pelicanos or Michael Conley, these like really popular mystery writers, a lot of times it takes mystery writers, you know, two or three books to um, to build their audience and then all of a sudden you know, they just like explode. And you don't really see that too much with literary authors. Um, I mean, I, I kind of, I, I wish, I wish you would see it more often, but, um, you know, it, part of it's the culture too, like editors moving from one publishing house to another right. and, um, things like that. So, well, and um, I, I feel like too, like the, the reality might just be, that you know, obviously, I think there's a it's a good you know it's a great time for publishing and independent publishing in particular, and I think that uh, people are reading, and I think it's a fallacy to say that people aren't reading because lots of books are selling, millions and millions of books are selling. Yeah. The publishing business, based on what I, I've read recently, is growing. It's not contracting in terms of its bottom line. Um, I think, yeah. but the you know the question really I like have, mergers. yeah, but I mean the question I have is. Uh, you know, in terms of literary fiction and literary nonfiction, that particular niche, like how narrow of a channel is that? Like how many people in the world are really into that, you know, as opposed to like George Pelicanos or Danielle Steele or, you know, cookbooks or whatever it is. But I mean, like, like, do do you have a sense of like working in this bookstore and kind of like getting to sort of walk through different sections and see the, the customers uh, filing through on a daily basis. Like, do you have a sense of, um, you know, are you seeing the same 150 customers <laughs> every week or, <laughs> you know, um, like, and, and what they're buying and stuff. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, it's, um, it's tricky when you, when you think of like literary fiction and it's like role in, you know, the book world these days. Um, Hey, and it's and it's kind of odd to like, frankly, working at Powell's and being in Portland because I feel like we're not. I mean, this is this is pretty special place. There's not other. There's not a lot of other cities like Portland. There's not a lot of other bookstores like Powell's. I was going to say. So I, I sort of feel like we're kind of spoiled. You know, I'm sort of like I'm kind of in a um, I'm sort of in a utopia. You know, and not every town is like that. Um, just because we sell, uh, you know, shitloads of like, um, Haruki Murakami, uh, you know, um, doesn't mean that every other bookstore in the country is, is selling, you know, a ton of Haruki Murakami stuff. Um, but I could be wrong. Um, yeah, I think that with, um, with, uh, literary fiction, it's, um, yeah, it can be, it can be a little bit of a tough game and, you know, you might see bigger presses publishing less literary fiction. Um, but then again, you know, that's where a lot of the small presses have come in and sort of 
right. to hit the pay for, for a lot of writers, you know? Sure. Um, so yeah, cause I think a lot of the stuff that's being published on small presses is, is, is just as good or worthy or better than the stuff that's coming out on Simon and Schuster or Random House or whatever. Well, that's what, yeah, I mean, that's part of it. What encourages me is that I don't think that there's a quality drop off with these, like a lot of these indie presses anyway, you know, like sometimes I'll pick a book up and be like, Oh, this is poorly copy edited or it's just not that great. But, um, you know, there's a lot of, there, there are a lot of very small presses with very limited, uh, budgets that are turning out work that, um, can sit, can sit proudly, on the shelf next to um, any any work that comes from a big house, and I think that's a cool reality. You know that didn't that, mm-hmm. that didn't used to be the case. You know, or at least not widely, or as widely as it is now. Yeah, and you know the trick, I guess, is just to figure out how those books can get the same attention or the same distribution. You know. Um, as bigger, you know, as something from a bigger press, it's not going to have the same distribution, but I, I sort of think the distribution, um, thing is, um, is, it's almost a, a, a moot discussion because people buy so much stuff online. Right. Um, and you know, they buy stuff straight from the publisher or com or whatever. And, um, so, um, somebody looking for like the new Jamie Iredale book, you know, could find it uh, just as easily online as they would like the George Saunders collection, you know? Yep. So, yeah, I mean, I don't think it's not a deal breaker. I mean, if you, if you only distribute digitally and that could be that, you know, you're selling paperback copies via the the various retail channels or you're selling ebook, you know, and or ebook copies like, uh, you know, obviously the more channels you can be in, the better it is because more readers can find you in more places, yeah. and, you know, but that if you're not in brick and mortar stores as an independent publisher, that that's not the end, you know, that doesn't mean people won't seek yeah. you out. The internet's, I mean, I think a uh, pervasive enough thing that it, it's totally, you know, natural for people to find books online, whether they're big press books or small press books. So um, with, yeah. re- with regard to writing, because we've spoken about your bookstore work and we've spoken about your work as a publisher and an editor, uh, you know, running a small press, but you're also obviously a writer. Um, you have this new novel out, you've written a very, um, bracing and candid memoir, uh, and a short story collection, correct? Yeah. Yeah. I've had like a couple of story collections and, um, yeah, a couple of chop, chop books from long ago days. The, <laughs> so the, kink, the Kinkos whenever, days? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Whenever someone asks me, like, how many books have you published? I never really know how to answer that question. So, so um, well, let me, I, wanna I find, don't know. I want to find out <laughs> how you got into this racket, but I guess, like, the place to start is just, like, where are you from? Are you, are you from the Northwest? You say you moved to Portland, but, like, where did you move to Portland from? <laughs> well, I grew up in Kennewick, Washington, which is in eastern Washington, small town. Um from there, I've moved around a little bit. I lived in Seattle for a year. I lived in Spokane for a couple of years. Um, and um, I um, um, and I lived in Arkansas um, for a year as well, which was kind of strange. But that's where I moved uh, to Portland from. Wait, wait, what? What, what happened in Arkansas? <laughs> that seems like a strange. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was like one one place does not 
does not fit in this picture. <laughs> um, uh, I, I was, uh, let's see, when did I move there? I guess I was like 23, um, 24 maybe. Um, and, uh, yeah, I just went there kind of like on a whim, you know, it's like, I was just at this age. I didn't really have like anything holding me down in Spokane. And, um, um, I, I went to broadcasting school was what I did. Um, I didn't go to, I need to go to college work. or go to any writing programs or anything. Um, so like my, my education was basically like a year, a year in community college and then a year at broadcasting school. <laughs> so at that time I was doing some radio work and a friend of mine offered me a job at a station in Arkansas in Fort, Fort Smith, Arkansas. So, um, the booming, so the booming, like, oh, yeah, the, the booming media mecca of, of Fort Smith, Arkansas. I know. <laughs> yeah. So I was just like, oh, what the heck, you know, I'll go there and like try it out, you know, be something, you know, I don't know. It was, um, you know, it was, an, it was an interesting year. I was there for about a year. Um, and, um, yeah, I don't know. And I was, I was actually still doing future tense. Uh, I, I was in Arkansas for, uh, like 1991 to 92. And so, um, yeah, so I, I was doing future tense and, um, I don't know. It was, I think at that point I was basically just kind of publishing my own, my own stuff still. So, um, but yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure what to say about Arkansas. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> it was like, it's a lost year. Just a strange, surreal, detour um i remember like i was um i was really getting into reading more like it's you know my my history as a reader is kind of strange because i didn't really grow up reading and i didn't really get into to reading a lot until i was like 21 so yeah so and like I, what then I got you were not habit. you were not a bookish kid then you were like you didn't grow up in a, in a like a bookish household or no like no not at all um so um yeah, so it was it was funny because when I moved to Arkansas, one of my memories of Arkansas was um, I um, I was just starting to get into to reading and I wanted to read stuff and I kind of wanted to sort of self educate myself and I had bought like a cheap bike and I just remember like riding around this town, just like you know I don't know how many people live there, like fifty thousand or something. You know, it's a pretty small town and um, I just remember like not really knowing anyone and I would just like spend my days like I would ride my bike around. I would like find like a used bookstore and I'd buy like um Kafka or like Dostoevsky. <laughs> like um I think I discovered like Richard Brodigan um around that time and um you know and I would just like ride around and I would like go like read somewhere. Um I feel, the library. See, I feel like having a sense of like real dislocation and isolation is great for reading. Like, uh, mm -hmm. I, I, some of the best reading experiences of my life, some of the best reading periods have been when I've been, uh, in kind of like foreign countries or foreign environments. And, you know, you're sort of like, you're sort of cornered and then books become that much more of a refuge. And I don't know, I, you know, it's been like really good concentrated periods of reading have happened to me at times like that in my life. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, um, uh, yeah, I mean, nothing makes you <laughs> sort of like, uh, look into yourself and, and kind of get into things more than like being in a new town where you sort of like, nobody knows who you are or whatever. It's like, 
you know, that's the time when you kind of. I was going to say nothing. Just nothing. Do what you want to do. Nothing turns you towards Franz Kafka's work more than living for a year in Arkansas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you know, it's like a chance to recreate yourself or whatever. Sure. Um, so. Okay, so interesting. So parents not artistic people. Like, do you like do you come from artsy people? No, no. Well, my my mom sewed a lot. <laughs> she she worked at a fabric store, and she would she would sew um, a lot in her spare time, and she would like make us clothes and stuff like that. Um, I was um, many of my friends would admire a lot of the stuff that my mom would make. She would sew these kind of like Miami Vice style jackets for me, <laughs> and um, so back at that back in those days, like in the mid to late eighties, I. You know, I had like my own personal uh, designer, you know, sure. my mom would sell me these things and these shirts and I would be able to go to the fabric store and say like, oh, I like this, this print or this design on this fabric. And she would make me a shirt, you know, like a button up shirt or whatever. And yeah, it was, it was cool. So <laughs> see, that's, but that seems like, a, that seems like creative artistry. Like, you know, cause I feel like sometimes people who might not have, uh, due to circumstances, you know, life circumstances or whatever, they might not have a creative outlet or they might not have had the opportunity to realize them, you know, their, uh, what they wanted to pursue. Like they find, you know, if you're a creative person and you have that impulse, it'll like find a way out of you somehow, whether it's like, you know, you're uh, baking or you're sewing or do you know what I'm saying? Like, I feel like, mm -hmm. I, I feel like I see that in people, you know, and yeah. Yeah, no, I, I I think so too. You know, it's just like it's just like that thing that we we're just talking about when you're when you're isolated somewhere, you have to find things to uh, to uh, do. You know, find things that that you can create or whatever. So, so were you walking like the halls of your high school and like a what was it, Crockett and Tubbs? I guess were you Crockett with these jackets? <laughs> um, well, no, it was funny, like. Um, I think I didn't, um, yeah, I guess maybe like, maybe like my last year of high school or something. I, I don't remember really what I wore in high school until like maybe the end, but I was really like shy and quiet. Like I didn't really have too many friends in high school. And so, um, yeah, I kind of blacked out those years, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there was lots of interesting fashion choices, um, that I made in the late eighties for sure, you know? And you got out at, you know, you, you left home. Was it just your mom you were at home with? Uh, my dad as well. Yeah. And, um, uh, and I had a couple, I had a couple of brothers that I grew up with, um, and their older brothers. Um, and my dad worked for the transportation department. So he, he had the, the job, you know, where he had to wake up early and leave at five o'clock in the morning. And, um, and, uh, yeah, he he wasn't really um, creative in in any way <laughs> that, that I can remember. You know, he'd make make me go to church with him on Sundays. So I grew up Catholic, and um, he was a very God fearing Catholic. And um, um, yeah, how did you so, how did you respond to that? Like, because uh, I was I was raised Catholic, and I'm always interested in other people's experience. Like, were you? <laughs> were you like were you like me when you were like eight years old, just going like, what the fuck is this? Like, what you know? I was. Yeah. I feel like I was confused from the first moment I was in that church. Uh huh. I um, 
I just kind of felt like I like I had to go. It was sort of like an obligation, basically. And uh, I wasn't I wasn't um, into it at all. Um, of course, after you go for so many years, you you know you learn all of the prayers by heart. You um, I still know them. You know you you start yeah yeah you start to sort of like uh, all that 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 Catholic guilt and all those things that people talk about really do kind of seep into you, you know? Uh, and I just remember most of the time, um, being bored, being nervous about the part of the service where we have to shake hands with our neighbors. <laughs> um, peace be with you know, you. who I was going to have to say peace be with you. That's how I remember it. Yeah. 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 And so like, you know, and I was always like really concerned about like, you know, is my hand going to be sweaty? You know, like, I, I was very self-conscious and I would worry about like the people behind me. Like, you know, are these people like, is my hair greasy? Do people, are people looking at my butt, you know, like, um, things do, like that. Do they, do they like my, I, do they like my son, you know, my Crockett jacket? Is it working? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Does this, this jacket look dorky? Like, you know, why doesn't anyone look like me? <laughs> um, but I also at the same time, you know, I was also like I had a little bit of angst inside me because I was missing like football games. I would always want to like be at home watching football. And um, which is which is, by the way, the true church of most of America <laughs> on Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> and I would always like we would go to like 10 o'clock mass and you'd get over like at 11. And I would always be really antsy to get home at least in time to watch halftime right. so I could see highlights of the other games. Well, you know? that's the thing about the West coast. Um, those games started, those games started <laughs> like 10 in the morning. You got to be up. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So that was, um, that was a big concern for me going to church was like, you know, I was really nervous about the football games and if my team was winning or, you know, things like that. <laughs> so, so what about, what about your brothers or any of the, are either of them artistic uh, fellows or is it, are you the sort of uh, family artist? Uh, my next oldest brother is, um, uh, he was a sportscaster for a long time and he lives in Houston. Uh, his name is Matt Samsel and, um, he, uh, still does a lot of sports stuff. He's like doing some sports reporting and some other like reporting for, um, for like a radio station down there. And, um, he had, he had a pretty long career, like being like a sports anchor on TV and, and different TV stations, um, in Seattle and Houston. And I think he was, he was in Columbus, Ohio for a little while or Cincinnati or something. Um, and, uh, but, uh, yeah, creatively, um, I guess I'm a little bit of the black sheep <laughs> of, the, of the family because I'm like the every, one. Every family needs one, right? Yeah, I guess so. So did you have – I mean, Okay, so like if you had this artistic impulse, which I think you share with your mom, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say that. I think that's where it comes from. <laughs> I know it has to come from somewhere. Um, and it seems mm -hmm. like she had maybe some latent, you know, artistic ability and instinct or something. But, um, you know, if you have this impulse and then you say you came to reading late, um, around the time that you were 21, like, I don't know, like, what was it that, that can you point to something like an incident or uh, like some sort of, um, 
you know, biographical footnote that when you look back on it, you're like, this is probably a pivotal thing for me. And it's, it's what drove me to books or got me thinking about wanting to express myself in writing. Um, well, as far as writing goes, like I was always, um, I, I was always writing from, uh, if you read, if you read my memoir, it kind of gives you a little like, inside about that too, but, um, well, a common pornography. I, uh, yeah. Uh, so in that book, I talk a little bit about, about this kind of stuff too, but, um, basically like when I was a kid, I was really like into listening to the radio and I had this fantasy of like, you know, being, uh, a DJ, Me too. um, or, or a pop star, one of the, one or the other, just to be on the radio in some way or another. And, um, so, um, I, uh, started writing like pop song lyrics when I was, you know, like a kid, like fifth grade, sixth grade. And I had this little black book and I write things like songs. They're like really cheesy lyrics, you know, of course. <laughs> and, um, but, but people like in my classroom would know about it and they would always ask to look at my little notebook of like song lyrics. Um, and it was really funny to think about that now that I would actually pass it around and other stu- other students or friends would look at it and, so, you know, I was doing that, like, later on in high school, um, a couple of my friends and I would just write, like, silly, like, weird, um, like, da-da poetry <laughs> kind of stuff, but we didn't know it was da-da poetry. It was just, like, we would just write these, like, weird little sketches or, you know, we we called them pieces. We didn't even call them poems or story. It was just like, oh, look at this piece I just wrote. And um, <laughs> yes, I, I, I'm sort of amused by the use of the word piece to describe writing. Like, this is my new piece. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, uh, you know, one of my good friends and I would, um, would, would sort of pass notes back and forth with these, like, weird things. We're just kind of trying to crack each other up, you know? Yeah. Um, but I remember, um, I do remember, like, being influenced just by like anything like weird and funny, uh, like Monty Python's Flying Circus or like Devo or, um, uh, I remember seeing, I think I was in high school and I remember seeing, um, on MTV, there's this show called IRS is the cutting edge. Um, and I think that's what it was. Um, and, they had this clip of Henry Rollins, like reading, uh, his, his piece, his poem, <laughs> his poem, uh, family man. And I remember like seeing him read this, this thing called family man. I don't know if you're familiar with it. No. Um, and, uh, it's actually like, the name of one of the black flag albums is family man. And, um, the whole first side of that album is just Henry doing spoken word stuff. And then on the back, like side B is just all these like dirgy instrumental um, songs. It's a very strange album. But um, so I saw Henry Rollins do um, Family Man. And it was like so weird and aggressive and like funny and this like, you know, like uber macho kind of way. <laughs> um, and I just thought, thought that was like so cool. Um, so I was like... Uh, so I was like partly into like the Henry Rollins thing, like what he was doing at first, you know? Um, so that was funny, but I would say the most pivotal thing that happened, 
that spurred me on to reading more was uh, I had a, a girlfriend when I was like 21 and uh, this was in Seattle and I used to go every week and buy like uh, Melody Maker and NME, these like British music magazines. Um, and I was just like super into like Brit pop and like indie music and stuff, mostly Brit pop though at that time. And, um, and I would just be reading these magazines all the time. And I would just remember my girlfriend like making fun of me for like never reading books. You know, this was like reading magazines all the time. And, um, so, um, her, um, like kind of badgering me about it for, you know, almost a year before we broke up, like when we broke up for some reason, all of a sudden I was like, uh, I'm going to start reading now. <laughs> like, go out. And I like, and I would buy these, these books and I just, I, I still kind of remember like the first few books that I bought just for the sake of like pleasure reading, you know? And, and now look at you, she must, she must look at you now and just be like, my God, he turned into an author and you know, I know it's so funny, but that's kind of like the, the, that, that's really like one of the big sparks that like made, you know, all this other stuff happen. It's so ridiculous. Like what, what people do sometimes, like when they break up with somebody like when they're young and then those decisions that they make because of that breakup or because of what that person thought of them. It's like, Oh, I'll show you, you know, <laughs> I'll prove right. you wrong. You know, like how many books have you read now? You know, it's like, I work in Powell's. So yeah, really. So it's, it's just ridiculous. But I remember like the first few books I bought were like, um, I bought like, uh, like Anne Rule, like, you know, true crime books, you know? And so I agree, like these true crime books, which are really fun, you know, like really fun and juicy. And, and I, but I, I, I eventually like got into like Kurt Vonnegut and Tom Robbins and, you know, all of that stuff that you kind of like read when you first start reading books, Bukowski, sure. you know, William Burroughs, things like that. It's like, um, well, so, and, and yeah. what's interesting too is that you write a lot about relate. I mean, your new novels uh, about re a relationship, but you write a lot about relationships. Like this is a recurring theme in your work and your writing career. You know, this is sort of the Rosetta Stone. Your writing career was born out of the uh, rupturing of a romantic relationship, <laughs> where your significant other goaded you and teased you for not reading books. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's true. I feel like that. I feel like that's a fascinating insight into your uh, yeah. life and career. <laughs> well, I really liked, um, I mean, I've, I've, I, I really like writing about relationships and I really, really like writing about people and how people react in relationships and, and, you know, like when they're faced with something, um, it's on a it's, personal level. It's difficult to get along with another human being like at, at any level. Mm -hmm. Like friendship, it's one thing, but then like intimately, like that's not easy. Like, and, and then you start to like extrapolate and it's like, okay, now groups of people getting along countries, like human beings, this is something we need to work on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so, um, uh, with, with this book in particular, you know, I did try to like, um, basically like, you know, talk about this couple and, I try, you know, there's like, there's, it's all like really short chapters, you know, there's like these, each little part of the book, I call it a chapter, but, um, so 
if you take each each little part of the book, there's like 200 of them. So I would try to, uh, when I was writing the book, I was trying really hard to make sure that each little part kind of focused on a different nuance, you know, a different sort of like uh, insecurity or a different sort of like, um, like, um, you know, uh, fetish or, you know, like, you know, or whatever you would want to call it. It's like, I was just trying to have, find like all these different angles to write about these relationships and these like very short little scenes. Um, so, um, did you, yeah, did, did, you, did you come away it, from the experience of writing this book and, and with any new insight into relationships? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, did you go, did you go into the project hoping to learn something? I mean, I guess that's gotta be part of it, but I mean, did you, did you have any epiphanies? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess, uh, the, the thing is, um, I mean, I kind of, I kind of knew it already, but as, as you, something, it just kind of more kind of reinforces, um, you know, what you already know. And, and, you know, maybe it adds a little bit of light to it, but, um, basically the whole thing about, you know, relationships and, and people in general, it just, you know, it's, it's just kind of a messy, it's kind of a mess, a messy deal. You know, nothing is nothing is perfect, you know, no relationship is ever, um, you know, uh, 100% perfect, you know, and, and if it is, it's, it's probably like imperfect because it is so perfect. You know? And everybody, um, else, everybody else hates you, you know, it's like you're, you're yeah. automatically loved by the rest of us. <laughs> yeah. So I was just trying to like, I think convey that, that there's a lot of messy elements, like living a life and living a life with someone that you love. There's a lot of messy elements to, to love, but at the same time, there's a lot of rewards. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of payback. There's a lot of, um, uh, there's a lot of things that, that, that come out of it, you know, and, um, it's, uh, it, it is a rewarding experience. Uh, I think too, like, I think too, when it comes to relationships and I think this is something that maybe the writer, the writer in me pays a lot of attention to and responds to, but, um, you know, everyone always talks in the context of healthy relationships, how important it is to be a good communicator. Um, you know, Mm -hmm. you, you hear that a lot and you read that a lot in, in anything written about, uh, relationships and how to nurture them or whatever. But, you know, as a writerly person, um, I think it's, it might even be understated how important it is to uh, listen well, but also to like choose words carefully because like what you say in the context of a relationship can be hugely damaging, you know, and it it happens a lot. Like, and, and especially like, I think the cumulative impact of uh, poor word choice or emotional uh, communication that might be, you know, that might have like a real negative charge to it. Even if it's something subtle, you know, I think cumulatively that can fuck things up royally, you know? And, Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. I find myself the older I get and the longer I've been uh, with my wife, like trying to be and have, you know, being a parent, just wanting to make sure that like, you know, I not don't speak in anger, um, you know, use words carefully because words maybe more than anything can unravel a relationship. I mean, obviously actions too. I mean, if you're throwing shit around the room and, you know, uh, or cheating or doing something horrible, you know, to somebody, then you're fine. But I think like most relationships, uh, the bulk of what undoes them is, um, bad communication, like bad talk or, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot of parts of this book that, um, that are about them, 
trying to talk or them talking about some, you know, element of their relationship. And, um, and, um, it was really fun to write those parts actually, because, uh, you can, because <laughs> sometimes when you're writing about like people talking, you can make them say things that maybe you yourself would be uncomfortable saying to someone actually, you know? <laughs> right. And so it, it was, it was fun to, um, to write those parts and, and actually have the dialogue kind of like keep going. Um, there's a lot of forgiveness, I think in the, in the book too, which I think is um, a big part of, of, you know, having a relationship is, you know, being able to, to forgive somebody for, for maybe saying the wrong thing. Okay. So how or do maybe you... like unintentionally doing the wrong thing or whatever. Okay. So uh, assuming you've probably pondered this, like how do, how do you forgive somebody? Like, how does forgiveness actually work? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it's like you don't forget it, but you forgive, you accept, you just try to stay in the present moment with them and you just say, you know, what's past is past. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, how does the actual act of forgiveness work mechanically, especially when it's something, when something has been done that is, uh, you know, hugely damaging, whether it's something they said or something yeah. they did or some combination? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it kind of depends on what the circumstances. Um, but, you know, look, I mean, people are different. Like some people are, are more laid back than others. You know, and some people have an easier time of like forgiving and moving on and just like, you know, being like, Oh, no big deal. You know, <laughs> I know that you love me and, and I love you and, and everything is good, you know? And, um, and other people, you know, sometimes maybe part of their personality or whatever doesn't quite, doesn't quite give them that ability to, you know, be relaxed about it or easygoing or whatever. Um, but I think, uh, you know, I, I've talked to, uh, friends who are having relationship problems, um, or they've broken up or, you know, or they, or sometimes it's like friends who have broken up and they want to get back together with this person or whatever. And, and I, you know, one of the things I've said to people is like, well, uh, this person loves you because you are, you know, who you are, you know, you know, you are like, uh, you know, Jack Smith or, you know, like whatever your name is, like that, that's who you are. And the person who, who, uh, loves you and wants to be with you will forgive you because you are that person. And there's nobody else that is like, you know, that, that is like you, Jack Smith or whoever you are. And so, um, I think that's part of it, you know, just, uh, that realization that everyone is, is, is a unique person. You know, sometimes somebody might break up with someone and then start going out with somebody else and maybe they'll love that person too, but it's not, you know, it's not the same as the previous person, you know, cause they're not the same people. So um, I think part of it is just kind of, um, accepting, um, that you can have, uh, a relationship with someone or you could, you can, or you've had a relationship with someone and you can still like sort of, um, appreciate and like hold on to those moments that you have with someone. And, um, it still shapes who you are in the present day. You know, it was something 
like a, if you're talking about a past relationship or whatever, it's something that um, that uh, maybe taught taught you something, or you know, made you uh, learn something or shaped you in some way. And so, I just think that's what relationships do to everyone. Um, and um, yeah, they definitely you know, te- they definitely of- teach you a lot. You know, it's, I think like I, I I'm constantly learning. Uh, not to sound, yeah. not to sound too precious about it, but I mean, you know, like it's like a, especially I think if you're in a good one and you're in in it with somebody uh, for the long haul, you know, they become this kind yeah. of mirror, and I don't know that you can't bullshit somebody that you're uh, intimate with in a good way, and it, it I don't know, I, I find that, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, the the fact that I'm, how do I put it, without like uh, mm-hmm. making myself sound like a complete fool, like. I guess I just feel like, uh, it's really good for me. You know, I'm lucky. I feel like I'm lucky to be with my wife because like, uh, I, I catch myself constantly. It's a really good like barometer and it's a, it's a good governor or something. You know, I I check myself, I check myself constantly against her happiness and how we're communicating. And you know, it becomes like the the thing becomes like a teacher in some way. Yeah, and I think people, I think people in general, um, maybe don't do that enough. Sort of stop every once in a while and kind of like appreciate like what they, what they do have, and like you know realize like how lucky or fortunate they are to be, you know, in the position that they're in, that they're in. Um, I mean, I've done that a lot uh, the last couple of years, just being like realizing how lucky I am to be in the position I am. And, uh, you know, but that's just part of, that's, that's all part of being human and like, you know, and like living every year and learning new things and, and learning how to, how to, uh, embrace things and how to work with things. And, um, you know, uh, that's what happens when you get older. You just kind of like, hopefully, hopefully you become more at peace and you, 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 uh, you learn that, um, you know, that, uh, life, life is as beautiful as you can make it, you know? Well, I, uh, I agree. And it's been really fun talking with you. I congratulate you, uh, not only on the new novel, um, but also on all the stuff that you do, because, uh, I think it's really good work and it's admirable how much you get done and how much you do for, um, you know, indie presses, writers, um, you know, who are just coming up in the world and so on and so forth. So congrats on all of it. Thanks for taking the time to talk. And uh, I certainly wish you well going forward. And I should say, if we were in the same room together right now, uh, I think I would say, uh, I would say peace be with you. And I would try to shake your hand just to make you uncomfortable. <laughs> I'm still wearing my boxer shirt. I haven't put pants on yet. So this, whole, <laughs> this whole interview, I've been like half naked. And I, I feel like it might have helped a little bit to kind of, you know, just loosen things open up. up a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> it's been fun, Kevin. Thanks so much for talking to me. Yeah, thanks a lot, Brad. Okay, everybody, there you have it. That is Kevin Samsel. Go get his novel. It's called This Is Between Us. It is available now from Tin House Books. You can find Kevin online at kevinsamsel.com. He's on the Twitter at Kevin Samsel, and I believe he's also on the Facebook. Thanks again to Squarespace, today's sponsor. Do you need a website? Would you like to improve your existing website? Visit squarespace.com, and when you sign up, enter the promo code OTHER11 for 10% off. Thanks as always to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com 
And don't forget about the app, the free official Other People app, the official app of this podcast. It's available now for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. It's the best and most elegant way to listen to this program and to access premium content and the full archives. So please go get the app if you haven't done that yet. The app itself is free. Okay? Uh, Also, before we go, just for fun, just as a small mental exercise, try to imagine me at Madison Square Garden. Uh, It's dark. The place is completely sold out. The crowd is electric. And uh, I'm up on stage interviewing... Salman Rushdie. That is the future of this program, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Live literary interviews in front of tens of thousands of adoring urban sophisticates. That is the future of literary interviews, period. I have decided. (laughs) You have to have a vision, and you have to be willing to pursue that vision with the tenacity of a rabid wolverine. Please remember that Louis Armstrong died in Queens and that Allen Ginsberg, at the height of his fame, kept his phone number listed in the telephone book. That is it for now. Thanks for being here. Thanks again to Kevin Samsel. Go get his novel. Uh, I will be back on Sunday with uh, another episode of this program. I think I'm going to be back. I don't mean to sound cocky. You know, I realize that life is unpredictable. My plan right now is to continue making shows and, uh, you know, whatever they are, these audio presentations, are they art? Are they media? It doesn't matter. My plan is to continue doing this. I hope to be there on Sunday for you, but we'll have to see. So, uh, to be continued, dot, dot, dot. Do you know what uh, dot, dot, dot is? That's an ellipsis. (laughs) 